when I'm being a yogi, I look forward very much to the talk. And when I'm teaching, I look forward very much to the talk. I love doing this. The most exciting thing I know to talk about is Dharma. The most exciting thing I know to listen to is Dharma. What I want to talk about is the notion of practicing vipassana in the spirit of metta. We've been making quite a conscious effort in the last few years, especially people who've been doing the practice for a while, to incorporate in a conscious way some metta practice into every day's practice. What I want to talk about is the notion of what does it mean to practice vipassana in the spirit of metta. And I want to make three points, and I hope I'm going to do that in the course of this talk. And what I'm going to do is tell you all three points that I'm going to make before I even start. And I thought perhaps it's a little bit like telling the punchline of a joke or the last page of a mystery novel just when you're starting. But it's really important for me to say this is what I mean to say, and then I hope I'll say it. I mean to say three things. I mean to say, first of all, that I don't think it's possible to practice vipassana without the spirit of metta. That doesn't make any sense to say this is the practice of opening with a balanced mind and heart to each moment of experience without talking about that quality of a balanced and even and open mind of heart and heart, which is really what metta is. And the second thing I hope I'm going to say is that as I thought about the title of this talk, Practicing Vipassana in the Spirit of Metta, I thought, kind of like a pun or a play on words, that really what I wanted to say was practicing vipassana is the spirit of metta. That there's a certain way in which fundamentally they're both the gradual opening of the heart to all aspects of our experience and really quite the same. And the third thing that I hope I'll say is that If the possibility or the thought arises that the notion of practicing with an attitude of metta somehow implies an attitude of casualness about it or somehow a lessening of zeal or of aspiration, that I think that's that's not so at all. That actually softening the heart, which is what metta attitude is about, is really an enabler of practice and an enabler of zeal and aspiration and right effort. So that's what I hope I'm going to say. So I thought I'd begin with the first, practicing vipassana in the spirit of metta. And I thought a little, I'd say a little bit about what is vipassana practice, really. Here we are, and for some people, just in the first few days of practice, It's a really easy practice to define. It's the practice of cultivating the ability to see each moment of experience with clarity and with composure. It's exactly the same instruction in our life apart from retreat and in our life in a retreat. 
The only difference is that here we do it slower. And perhaps the slowness fosters the possibility that more clarity is available and more composure is available. But really it's the same practice all the time. And then if we say, well, that's the practice of vipassana, cultivating the ability to meet each moment and see each moment, recognize each moment and allow each moment with clarity and with composure, then the next question, the question that that brings, is towards what end? Why should we do that? And I like to think about two ways of saying the answer to that. The first way is that the practice is in itself an end in itself. Suppose we could do that. Suppose we had the ability to meet each moment with composure and clarity and balance of heart and mind. We'd be home free, wouldn't we? That's really a wonderful definition of freedom. Because all we have is moments. We can't change the world and we can't change what happens. The only thing we can do is change our heart and the ability to be balanced and open and not to struggle. And when there's no struggle, there's no suffering. So in a quite immediate sense, the practice itself is freedom. Just doing it is freedom. And there's another way, which is a slightly longer way of understanding this process of cultivating the mind and heart that sees clearly and with composure. And that's that when we see clearly and with composure, what happens is that understanding arises, insight arises, wisdom arises. And with wisdom and understanding, comes the ability to live with composure and with clarity and with equanimity. So it's either the just the doing of the practice or the wisdom that comes from the doing of the practice. Either way, it's just fine. Vipassana means seeing clearly. And we call this insight meditation. It's insight into the true nature of how things are. And that as we slow things down and see them more clearly, as we see them fully with a certain amount of composure in the mind, fundamental insights about what is true arise. Again, it's almost like telling the secrets that at the end of the book of the mystery novel. But it's fine to tell the secrets of the insights because they're things we all know. We know them either intellectually or we have some sense of them. We understand them mentally. This is a process of coming to know them entirely in a visceral way, with the very marrow of our bones. We get to know the three fundamental things that are true about experience. We get to know that it's all impermanent, that it's passing, that it's passing as it arises. that the only thing that's true and constant is change. And we know that there's a quality of unsatisfactoriness about all experience 
because of its changeful nature. There's nothing that we can hold on to or get to stay just right. It's all right, that's just the way things are. But we get to see that quite clearly. And we get to see in quite a startling way when it arises that it's just experience happening and it's not happening to anyone. That the idea that it's happening to me is an optical illusion. That doesn't change the fact that pain exists, sadness exists, disappointment exists. It doesn't matter if there's no one that owns the pain or no one that's the permanent holder of the pain. Sadness exists, pain exists, despair exists, disappointment exists. The crucial insight, I think, for making it all manageable is seeing the insight of change and of impermanence. When the Buddha was dying, the almost last, the next to the last sentence that he said, his final teaching was transient are all conditioned things. That's really the important thing to know. Everything that arises passes away. And there's a certain way in which we all know that. If we took a poll here, if we had a quiz and we said, who here thinks everything that arises passes away? It's a test. Everyone would raise their hand. We know it. The sun rose this morning and it set this afternoon. Yesterday is in the same void as the Civil War. Everything is passing. We all know that. But we don't always remember it on a visceral level. If we remembered it, we'd be much freer. We really become frightened of our experience because we're not sure it's going to pass. When my children were very young, I, there was a period of time when they were all quite young and quite close together, and the life in my house was very hectic. And I remember painting a mural on the wall of my kitchen with a line out of scripture on the top of it that said, Gamze Ya'avor, which is Hebrew for this too shall pass. And it did, actually too quickly. Certain things we're sure will pass. I don't know anybody who likes to go to the dentist. And I, know, I don't know anybody who doesn't go either. But one of the things that we're sure about when we go is that it's a finite amount of time and it will end. When you go into the dental appointment, no matter how unpleasant or foreboding the process that you're going to have appears to be root canal extraction, who knows what, you know as you walk in that an hour or an hour and a half later you'll be walking out from there. If it were an open-ended dental appointment, <laughs> nobody would go. It's the same with our forgetting that our moods and our feelings, our mind states, our body states are just as impermanent as the dental appointment. Although when we're caught up in them, and especially when they're painful, we forget about it. And we become frightened about it. That knowing that things are impermanent doesn't make them unpainful, 
doesn't wipe away pain or sorrow. All it does is make the balance of mind around the pain or the sorrow or the grievance that allows for remembering that this too shall pass. That gives a little bit of balance to the mind and a little bit of workability to it. So that's really what we're doing. It's quite a simple practice. We're slowing things down to see them quite clearly, to see that everything passes. And we see that in every aspect of our experience. What we've been doing for the past two days is focusing our attention primarily on body sensations and most primarily on the experience of the breath. The breath is a body sensation, actually. It's a myriad combination of body sensations, pressures and tinglings and pullings and vibrations and expansions and contractions and other body sensations as well. We've been particularly focusing on the breath as a way of using the breath as a neutral object to calm down the mind and focus it so it can see clearly. But even in the breath itself, using the breath as a calming focus and a calming object, we could just stay with the breath forever and see everything that's true about experience just in the breath. And just rest in the breath and we begin to see impermanence. Breaths come and go. Is a breath in and a breath out and that one won't happen again, it's gone. In-breath disappears, out-breath arises and disappears, in-breath arises and disappears. If we don't breathe for a while, if we hold our breath, uncomfortableness arises. So we take a great breath in and then we feel really comfortable. Wow, great. But if we hold that breath, it's not comfortable anymore. Uncomfortableness arises. And so we let it out and then we feel very relieved. But if we don't breathe in again, uncomfortableness will happen. So we breathe in again. There isn't any permanent resting place of comfort. There isn't a place in the breath where we can rest with comfort always. So we see impermanence and we see unsatisfactoriness. And as we rest in the breath, we see impersonality, selflessness as well. The breath just happens. There isn't a little you in there that says, now breathe, now don't breathe, now breathe, now don't breathe. We don't think about breathing. We go about the day and the breath just breathes. The body just breathes itself. We go to sleep at night. Lo and behold, it breathes itself. It just happens. We don't decide when to breathe. The body knows when to breathe. We could see everything that's true about experience just by resting in the breath and paying very close attention to it. As we've been sitting in these last two days, especially as the body is not so used to sitting quietly, people have often talked about uncomfortable, strong sensation in the body. It presents itself as pain in the knee or the back or the back of the neck. And if we're able to, and if we're able to compose the mind and stay quite attentive to that sensation that we call pain, strong sensation in the body of an unpleasant variety, we learn a lot about what's true about the mind. 
we learn about that the components of what we call pain are actually individual components, just as what we call breath is actually lots of different sensations. What we call pain is lots of different sensations as well. If we're able to, in a balanced way, really bring the attention to the area of strong sensation, what we find is pulling or tensing or vibrating or pulsing or heat or throbbing. And as we watch it, we see its sensation in constant change. doesn't stay the same. gets amplified and fades away and one sensation disappears and another one arises. We see change, constant change, in every moment of experience, including or especially in that experience that we call pain. And we learn a lot about how the mind reacts to pleasant and unpleasant experience in the body. The unpleasant experience arises in the body, and the mind reacts to it by tightening up a certain amount of aversion and tenseness around that painfulness. And we learn that that's the way minds work that the habitual response of mind to unpleasant experience is to move away from it and tighten up. And we get to discover some really fundamental things about the nature of suffering, that pain is pain. And if we watch, suffering is what we add to it with the tension that comes up in the mind in response to it, in our inability to be relaxed around it. I'll tell you an experiment that probably many of you have already done unwittingly in these two days that shows about that relationship of tension in the mind and suffering to pain. Suppose you are sitting and there's some strong sensation in the body, not pleasant, in the knee or in the shoulder, in the back, wherever. And the degree of unpleasantness is increasing, and the degree of agitation and tension in the mind is increasing. And finally, you're thinking any minute that if that bell doesn't ring, I'm going to have to move this knee because I can't make it another moment. And then the bell rings. And lo and behold, the knee pain disappears, maybe not altogether, but quite a lot. The body just relaxes, the mind relaxes. Ah, it's okay. I don't have to sit here anymore. And as long as we don't have to, the mind isn't all tied up in a fear about it. It's just sensation in the knee. Begin to have very clear lessons in how the mind reacts to pleasant and unpleasant, and how suffering is really what comes with the tension in the mind that comes up around unpleasant. In the beginning of my practice, I used to have certain sittings where my body was so filled with restlessness that I was convinced I was going to explode. I was going to be the first yogi in history to explode on the Zafu. That the energy vibrating in my body and tingling was like a zillion pins all firing off at the same time in my body. I used to think up all kinds, try to think of all kinds of ways to divert the attention away from it, but the 
intensity of the sensation was so unpleasant, I couldn't even manage a pleasant fantasy. Wait and wait and be so eager for the bell to ring that I actually would hallucinate the sound of the bell ringing. I'd be sitting and all of a sudden I'd hear ding and I'd think, oh, thank heavens. And I'd open my eyes and everybody else is still sitting. I realized that I had hallucinated, that the intensity of tension in the mind, wanting so much for the bell to ring, had created the sound of the bell. That didn't even happen. There was a series of uh, um, conferences in the late 70s, I suppose, when people were interested in psychic phenomena called uh, the mind can do the the mind can do anything and people did all kinds of extraordinary feats with the mind so i thought about that when i was hallucinating the bell i thought not only can the mind do everything it does do everything also learn a lot as you sit about how the mind reacts to pleasant experience in the body all of a sudden you're sitting and paying attention or trying to and all of a sudden it's pleasant all of a sudden the body feels good maybe even feels pleasant sensation tingling or a warmth or a lightness and immediately the mind the thought arises i wonder how i did that i wonder in what particular way i sat or breathed or held my body so that that particular pleasant experience arose and could I do it again and I'll try to so we have immediately a lesson in how the mind reacts with grasping to pleasant experience and hopes that it'll stay as well as reacting with aversion to unpleasant experience and hopes that it will go actually what we are trying to cultivate is a mind and heart that stays open for all experience because it all comes and goes. It's pleasant, it comes and goes, and it's unpleasant, it comes and goes. What we really want is not a particular mind state, but the equanimity of mind that allows us to be with balance with all mind situations and all body situations. As we talk here about cultivating a mind that's being able to be present with everything, it's not just to teach the mind to tough it out and to endure. This is not an outward bound of the mind. It's really to cultivate the kind of mind that's present choicelessly for whatever experience arises so that it can then see quite clearly the truth of all experience. You need to have all experience, the pleasant and the unpleasant, whatever comes, to see what's true about it. So what we do here is we welcome, or we try to welcome, all experience. And we particularly pick plain stuff, not fun stuff, not even hard stuff, plain stuff, sitting and walking and eating and taking a shower and doing a yogi job. That's about it for activities that we have here. And they're all pretty plain. And I used to reflect a lot about how amazing it is when 
I come, or when anybody comes, come to a place like this, it's a vacation in the desert. So all of a sudden I come to a place with a room of my own or with another amiable person and room of my own and wonderful meals and lovely weather and no one bothering me to do anything and no telephones to answer and no particularly difficult jobs to do. This should be wonderful. We should all sit down and be in perfect peace. And the moment we arrive, and the moment we get quiet, the mind leaps into action and struggles with everything. It's too hot, it's too cold, the food is too plain, the food is too spicy, my bed is too hard, my bed is too soft, my pillows are the wrong ones, it's the wrong time to come, I should have come another time. It's not that you're practicing wrong. This is what practice is. It's seeing the response of the mind to pleasant and unpleasant. Actually, one of the four foundations of mindfulness is just being attentive to the sensations of the awareness of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which are really the three valences, one of which appears with every moment of experience. We mostly don't realize neutral because we mostly space those out. We're mostly just vigilant for pleasant and unpleasant. Oh, good, this I like. Ah, oh, this I don't like. If we did that for a whole day, you see, the mind is like a ping-pong ball. Ding, 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 ding. This I like, this I don't like. Good lunch, not enough lunch. Too crowded the table. Mm, not enough time to eat. Oh, plenty of time to eat. Back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. It's a wonder that we make it through a day. It's hardly a moment that we don't have a judgment and a response to. The mind is got to be exhausted at the end of the day. Watching the response of the mind to pleasant and unpleasant, watching that pleasant unpleasant arise and pass away, and experiencing now and then the pleasure of a resting mind. Sometimes the mind just relaxes. Nothing outside changes. Nothing outside gets perfect. It never gets perfect. If it gets perfect, it doesn't last. I think the probably the quintessential, well, apart from Horton maybe, but the other wonderful Dharma story, it, which you'll now recognize, I'm sure, is the porridge, this porridge is too hot. This porridge is too cold. This porridge is just right, but now it's all gone. This chair is too hard. This chair is too soft. This chair is just right, but now it's broken. So the people who don't know probably need to know that that's Goldilocks and the Three Bears. But we can't get it just right. It's always too hot or too cold. And if it's just right, it doesn't last. It was an extraordinary... Um, learning experience for me, a particular moment of practice many years ago that happened to me in Santa Rosa. I'll tell you the story. Jack and I were talking the other day and he said, he asked, well, what do you suppose were the really crucial or pivotal points of your practice? And there have been lots of really important and valuable and some exciting and exotic moments of practice over all these years. 
And the one that immediately came to mind is quite a plain one, but really a pivotal one in my own learning. I was sitting at a retreat center up in Santa Rosa. Probably many of you have been there. And I'd been practicing for some time, sitting and walking and sitting and walking and practicing. And it was before lunch one day, and I went outside, and I sat on a stone bench that's outside the back door. It's not very comfortable, that stone bench. It's a stone bench. And it was a somewhat cold day, overcast, a little bit foggy, actually. So the bench was not only hard, but a little cold. But I sat there, and I knew it would be lunchtime soon, and I was just sitting and being attentive to the breath in and out. I was a little hungry as it was lunchtime. And all of a sudden, I realized that my mind was resting, that it didn't want anything. All of a sudden, the mind was quite relaxed. It wasn't that it was empty, or that it was blank of thoughts or feelings. It was just relaxed. It was very plain and very extraordinary. I opened my eyes a little bit because I, at the time, had been quite affected by uh, Annie Dillard, uh, who some of you have read, who's a wonderful naturalist and wrote lots of wonderful books about mystical spiritual experience, including particularly Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, where she talks about walking along one afternoon and suddenly seeing the cypress tree ablaze. And when you read that, at least I understood that the cypress tree wasn't actually on fire, but that she saw it with altered vision, and so it seemed radiant or ablaze to her. And I knew if I opened my eyes, there'd be this tree out in front of me that had been there when I closed my eyes. And I felt so extraordinarily at peace, I thought, just open my eyes and see the tree. And I did, and it was just plain. It was the same tree as before I closed my eyes. And it was a gray day in Sonoma, and an ordinary tree, and by then it had actually started to mist a little bit. It was starting to rain. And the lunch bell rang, and no intention arose in the mind to get up, or to do anything, or to go and have lunch. Just the mind was resting. It was totally plain, and totally wonderful. Totally garden variety, mind at rest, run of the mill, mind at peace. And it was lovely. And it was a really pivotal turning experience for me in my own practice. Over the years, I've done lots of intensive practice, and there are mysterious and interesting and exotic mind states. But really, what's really the most exotic mind state of all is a mind that doesn't want anything different. That's really extraordinary. I think that's really what we want to do. Want to be okay with how it is, just like how it is. Plain, cold bench, little bit of rain, little bit of hungry, but it's just fine, just the way it is.
So that's what vipassana practice is, cultivating a mind that relaxes, that's open to all situations. So what does it mean practicing in the spirit of metta? I have to say a little bit about what metta practices. Metta is a particular traditional practice in Buddhist tradition. It's a practice of friendliness and forgiveness. The word metta is associated from the same root word as friendliness. Sometimes people do metta practice as their entire practice, as a intensive practice for some period of time. All of us have. It's a concentration practice. It's an extraordinary practice of beginning with bringing to mind someone that you love quite wholeheartedly, without any reserve at all, and with as much intention and sincerity as one can, repeating certain phrases of well-wishing directed towards that person. It's a wonderfully scientifically engineered concentration practice. So as one concentrates on sending well wishes, good wishes to someone that one loves unreservedly, one begins to feel wonderful, makes wonderful feelings. The mind relaxes, heart relaxes, body relaxes. It's an intense concentration practice. One starts with someone that one loves quite unreservedly and it feels so good to wish that person well that kind of on the steam or the energy of that good feeling one wishes oneself well. And then you feel good. You kind of jumpstart the motor by thinking about someone you love totally, totally. I mostly think about my grandchildren and wish them well. Makes me so happy and I'm so excited to feel that that I wish myself well. And then I'm, you kind of get on a roll, and then you're wishing yourself well. You think about all the people who are intimates of yours, whom you love a lot, but whom you have maybe a little glitch around the edges with. With whom do we not have glitches? Even with ourselves, we have monumental glitches. So with all the people that we know and are close to us, but we include them. And at that point, we forgive them their glitches, not because we've become saintly, or not because we are so inspired with desire to be saintly, but because it feels so good to feel totally loving. It's really for one's own self. The kind of the mind makes a choice. Should I remember the ways in which this person gets on my nerves and close my heart? Or should I continue to feel terrific? Well, it makes sense to continue to feel terrific. I'll just do it. So that's what metta practice is. And then you do it with people that you hardly know at all, people who are so to speak, neutral people, and eventually you get to do it with people who you have some real problem with. And <clears throat> with people whom we have real problems with, people we've had real difficulties with, we get to be able to open our hearts to them, not because we've forgotten the real hurts that they've often done us, or not because we even like them, but because we develop a space of compassion and a space of forgiveness, that in, uh, in the space of the heart that's open and easy, it's possible to really get it that when people have 
behave towards us in ways that are harmful and hurtful, they've done it always through ignorance and through their own pain. And so we're able to acknowledge that and respond with compassion and spaciousness. So metta practice is really this particular practice of beginning with one's closest persons, beings, and then opening the heart more and more to include all beings. Vipassana practice is opening the heart more and more to be able to include all aspects of our experience. It's being friendly to all aspects of our experience. If we are committed to seeing all of experience clearly in order for insight to arise, in order for wisdom to accrue, then we need to see all of it, not just some of it. And in order to see all of it, we have to befriend all of it, to make ourselves available to all of it. So there are two ways in which I understand the spirit of metta in vipassana practice. One is forgiving ourselves and our experience for what's ever happening. It's just happening. And it's just what's happening. Lots of people have come with an expectation of how it would be. And then it isn't that way. It's never that way. Perhaps people have done a retreat or two or more before, and they begin to have an expectation, by the second day I should be alert, by the second day I should, my body should be free of pain, this should be happening, that should be happening, the mind should be relaxed, I shouldn't be rerunning those old trips. What's happening is just what's happening. And to struggle with it makes the pain of what's happening into suffering. Otherwise, it's just what's happening, and it will change. The second sense of bringing the spirit of metta to vipassana practice is just really that sense of friendliness, openness. Not expecting any particular experience and welcoming all experience. An interesting, just now I remembered an interesting lesson I had a very long time ago that really changed my practice, and it fits to tell about here, because it has to do with friendliness to experience. And it lets me tell a story about Jack, who's an important teacher of mine. Many years ago, in this very place actually, at a group interview, Somebody asked Jack the question, um, where is the bhakti in this practice? It's a very dry practice, just sitting and walking. No chanting, no singing, no bowing. Where is the bhakti in this practice? And he said, I think this is the most bhakti practice of them all. We sit down and we say, here I am, God. Do whatever you want to me. That was such an informative instruction for me. That's how you practice. 
You sit down, you say, here I am. Whatever happens, I don't condition my experience, I don't plan it, I just stay alert for it. I don't think about it, I have it. First one experience, and another experience, and another experience. We get to be present for it more and more, and when we are, we get to see what's true. Most essentially, we get to see that it's changing all the time. When I thought about giving this talk, I wanted to say the third point about that practicing with a softened heart doesn't mean anything about practicing in a casual way. It has nothing to do. It's, a, it's actually the opposite of casual. Softening the heart, opening with friendly compassion to oneself, to one's experience, is the opposite of casual practice. It's steadfast and sincere and zealous practice. It's the resolute intention to meet every moment with the same impartial friendliness as any other moment. Perhaps we're expecting a friend or a lover for dinner and we're all in an excited mood. This is the way they're going to be. And then they come home from wherever they've been and they're tired or they're grumpy. So they come and they're not what we expected them to be. But we forgive them because we're friendly with them. Say, this is how they are. I expected otherwise, but this is what I got. We come here, we sit down, we expect serenity of mind. We get jumble of mind or uproar of mind. I expected otherwise, but this is what I got. We're hungry, we're looking forward to lunch. We come there. And once again, it's barbecued tofu or whatever it is that one might not like. Say, well, I was hoping for vegetable stew and I got barbecued tofu, but here I am. It's very hard to have a heart that opens in friendliness to every experience. It's not casual practice, it's hard practice. I particularly give you those kinds of examples because those are the examples that our lives are made of. Those are really the examples that are the fabric of our life. It's not the big, huge things. It's the thousands of times a day that we can either say, oh, far out, this is what's happening, or mm, I like this, how can I get more of it? Or I don't like it, how can I not have it? It's just what it is. It's very difficult practice. But if we behave with resolve, with kindness, if we're truthful about our, what our experience is, if we're compassionate with ourselves, if we are forgiving of ourselves and our experience, if we are friendly with ourselves and our experience, then it all becomes easy. It's a very simple practice. Just have to stay awake, stay alert, feel what's happening, and then we get what's true. That's ultimately the truth, that's really the key to freedom. 
think what I'd like to do to finish is to read um, a particular quote about what Vipassana practice is that I carry around with me most of the time. I love the story about Pascal who had a vision of the divine and wrote his vision on a piece of paper and sewed it into the lining of his coat and presumably wore that coat every day for the rest of his life. And when he died, he was wearing the coat with his vision of the divine sewed into the lining of the coat. I think to myself, if I were going to sew, um, what was the most important description of truth to me into the lining of my coat, this might be it. Two sentences describing Vipassana practice from a book called Tranquility in, and Insight by Amadeo Solelaris. And the two sentences are It is through the mindful observation of what is actually true that the delusion that makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting, is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is, quite literally, nothing to worry about. Let's just sit for a few minutes. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 7, 1992. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.